First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And here's what I want to do. In the past, we've read this all consistently. I've got a number of things that we want to deal with as we walk through, but we are continuing, obviously, our First Peter series, our Living Hope series. And today, the sermon title is Submission and Suffering. Um, there is a lot of truth that we have to begin to unpack and understand as we dig into this part. This, I will, I will promise you, number one, this is probably going to be a little unnerving maybe a little bit uncomfortable as we walk through some of this because we're going to be talking about what it means to be a person who submits to authority, but we're also going to be talking about uh, what it means to suffer. Both of things that I believe that the early or really the American church right as of now has having a lot of troubles and difficulties with. Like we don't like the idea of suffering and we really don't like the idea of submission. Um, And so I believe wholeheartedly Hear me out that there is a balance here that is going to take place when we line our word or our, our lives up with the truth of God's word. So 1 Peter, starting in chapter 2, in verse 11, listen to what he says. He says this, depending on your, your text, it could be beloved or it may say dear friends. Mine's a little bit older version. It says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I'm going to pause right there before we jump in. And I want to remind us as we dig into 1 Peter and think about what we're talking about. We're talking about living uh, or following and having a living hope in this life. And a lot of times, one of the things that we're dealing with right now in our current context, in the current situation within our world, is that people are really looking for hope, but really struggling with where to find hope. As a matter of fact, we're looking for hope in all kinds. Uh, uh, you remember that song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places? Sorry, I grew up in a truck stop, right? Like, uh, I grew up in a truck stop, and we had a jukebox, like my, my grandfather owned it. We used to, I mean, we were in there all the time. Do you guys remember that song? Looking for, okay, all right. That's what comes to mind. But then I think about looking for hope in all the wrong places. Sorry, I'm terrible singers. You don't want me up here leading worship. But that's just my thought process in where the world's at. We're looking for hope in everything else instead of trying to find hope where it's firm, where it's secure, where we just sing about this cornerstone, Jesus being the the rock, the cornerstone in our life, and that's where we can find hope. And so the main idea of 1 Peter is this new birth that we have in Christ that gives us a living hope no matter what we're going through, whether it's persecution, hardship, trial, difficulty, struggle, whatever that is, we can have a living hope. Last couple nights, my wife is gone. As a matter of fact, I want to give a little bit of a shout out. My wife and Maria and Maggie, uh, Chris's daughter, went out to Indianapolis. Maria was qualifying or wanting to qualify for the Boston Marathon, by which I want to brag on and say, uh, your youth director just ran a three-hour and 18-minute marathon. Uh, yeah, right? Like, that's miraculous in and of itself because I would die. Right? Like, I don't know about you. That's a, like, I don't remember what it was. It's a 17, or a, sorry, a seven minute, 38 second mile for 26.2 miles. That's smoking. Like the average person walks a mile in like 15 to 20 minutes. And she was running 738 
and, and qualified. My wife was uh, going to run the half marathon last week, started having problems with her knee, uh, and went in and had an MRI last week. They thought maybe she'd broke her knee, or I say broke, it was a, what do you call them, stress fractures. They end up finding out Friday morning that it wasn't any stress fractures, but she ended up running the 5K, got her personal record. Maggie ran, lots of great things going on. But I, I want to I just kind of think about as we walk through these things. During World War II, Americans spoke about the fight on the war on two fronts, right? There was the German side, the European side against the spread of the Nazis, and and then there was the war in the Pacific Theater against Imperial Japan. And so the last couple nights, my daughters came to me on Friday night, we were out to eat, and they were like, we want to watch Pearl Harbor. And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I'm like, well, Pearl Harbor's great. I'll sit down and watch it with you, but it's really, it's, it's a twofold thing. Obviously, it's a love story based upon uh, some, some bad things that happened in the history of the United States. But I've also heard in the past as I've studied it, and I'm a history nut. I love war history, being in the military and things like that. But I've heard many people who were members of that greatest generation, both my grandparents uh, and, and various people I've talked to. Matter of fact, we had some great men here in the church who were a part of that, have been in the part of that, or maybe you walk through that, but I heard of this war on two fronts. You had this war overseas, but at the same time, you had this war on the home front taking place, and it affected everyone. World War II affected everyone to the point that everyone made great sacrifices, whether with their lives overseas or with great sacrifices at home, with rationing and blackouts and working in factories and trying to do what we could to win a war. And what I want us to understand today is I believe there's a war on two fronts taking place amongst Americans, but also really just a spiritual battle that's taking place. And that spiritual battle is both in the world and I believe in our own lives. And so what Peter gets to here is this battle of, of, of two fronts that he's trying to address that I begin to say we have to look at and prepare us for the future as Christians. Listen, we have a new family identity. We've been redeemed. We've been bought by the blood of the lamb into the family of God. We are a new creation. And listen, in our spiritual war, we battle on two fronts as well. The world is our external foe to a certain extent, and our passions of the flesh is our internal foe. The very things that we want to do. And listen, when I say this, when I say the world is our external foe, please hear me out. When we understand that from a scriptural perspective, the battles, it says that the, that scripture says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And a lot of times we'll look and we'll say that our battle is against the world, against people who don't know who Jesus is. I believe to a certain extent that can be played out, but what we have to begin to understand is that battle in reality is a battle against Satan and the work that Satan wants to do in the world around us. And so here's what I want to unpack today. Here's the main idea, the main statement, the main thought. If you remember anything, I want you to remember this. We must live with godly character to make the most impact in a foreign world. We have to have the godly character to make the greatest impact in a foreign world that we can make. And so I want to unpack that. I want to ask this question. How can I make a difference with my life? 
I believe that Peter answers that very clearly here. How do I make a difference with my life if I am supposed to have this godly character? Number one is this. He says to live as strangers in the world. Matter of fact, he says, dear friends. That's the second time Peter's talked about this. He opens that letter with the statement, beloved. In other words, the very people I love, those who I care for, you are close to my heart. He says, dear friends or beloved, I urge you then... He's literally laying this out. I urge you as aliens or strangers. We don't like that term. Our politically correct world says, well, nobody's an alien, right? But the idea is a foreigner. If I go into a country I don't know, I am an alien, right? I am a foreigner. I don't understand the concepts. Before we went into port anywhere when I was in the Navy, one of the things that we would get is right before we went in, we got all the cultural customs that we had to understand and relate to so we wouldn't offend people, right? But I'm still a foreigner. I was in foreign territory. I didn't know what was going on. And so he says this to the group of believers. Keep in mind, Jewish and Gentile people who had come to faith in Christ, and he strongly urges, if I was to urge you in a certain direction, he's literally saying this, I urge you as foreigners or as strangers And this is what he says, to abstain from sinful desires. Here's the war on the home front, the internal war that I've got to deal with, right? There is this battle that takes place in my life that it's easier, and I'm always going to hold to this stance. It is always easier to do the wrong thing, (laughs) right? Like, I use this over and over and over again. I never had to teach my kids to be bad, right? Like, that was natural. Like, I don't, it's, I have to teach them how to live right. I have to teach them how to make the right decisions. I have to, likewise, I have to let the Lord, his word, speak into my life and teach me how to make the right decisions, to live the right way, to pursue the right things, to live a righteous life. That's literally what he's called me to do. So he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain. Now, the, here's the idea of abstaining. Matter of fact, I'm going to read just the Dictionary definition, to restrain oneself from doing or enjoying something. That's kind of weird, right? Like, like you're, uh, Brian, you're telling us not to enjoy something. No, I'm not telling you to not enjoy everything. I'm telling you to enjoy, not to enjoy certain things. There are things in our lives that we're not to give into. And so he says, abstain from what? Sinful desires. Right? So as a believer, I am called to abstain from the sinful desires, the, the desires that wage war against my soul is what he unpacks. In other words, there are things internally in my life that if I give in to those desires, what is it going to do? It wages a war in my life that leads to conflict and destruction. And so as we're watching Pearl Harbor last night, all I can think about is we get to the worst thing, and my daughters were like question after question after question. I was like, y'all know if you just watch the movie, some of those are going to be answered, right? Anybody, anybody's kids like that? What, what's, why is that going on? Or maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your husband, I don't know. But it's like, why is that going on? What's going on? What, what, what? And I'm like, good grief, you watch the movie, you'll get to the point. And they were like, she's giving me the look, like, the look my wife would give me, but I want you to understand what's taking place. He's literally unpacking and, and, and letting us know that there are desires within our lives that we want to fulfill, that we shouldn't want to fulfill. And so he's saying that you have to abstain from it. Matter of fact, we have this 
idea in this world now that if it just feels good, what? Just go do it. What the Bible says is that's completely opposite of what Jesus wants us to understand. There is a point in time where we have to begin to abstain from the very sinful things that are around us. The very things that God has called us not to do, the very things that Jesus died on the cross for to save us from. We abstain from those things, abstain from the evil desires, the sinful ways of the world. He's literally creating a line in the sand to say, look, you can chase after those things, but as you chase after those things, you're going to give into those cravings and you're going to fall into the deceit of the world. And listen, as a result of that, when I give into those evil temptations, when I don't abstain from the sinful desires, what I'm settling for is a hope that is not a living hope. That's why people run to people. That's why people run to psychology. That's why people run to substance abuse. That's why people run into the arms of another person. That's why people run into false teachings and false hope. Because they want those sinful desires fulfilled rather than living an obedient life to Jesus Christ. So he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers or foreigners and exiles in the world. What is he talking about when he says that? Well, there's the world around us with which we operate, right? And if I operate or live as a foreigner or stranger, that means that I am a part of somewhere else, right? I'm a part of another nation. I'm a part of another kingdom. I'm a part of another group or another family. And so the reason why Peter is saying that you are foreigners and exiles or aliens and strangers is because once you are in a relationship with Christ, once you are a part of God's family, then you are no longer a part of the world. You are a part of his kingdom. You are a part of his family. You are a part of his bride. You are a part of the church of God. And when you think about that, when you understand what's going on, he says, then as a result, because you are a part of that, then you need to abstain from those sinful desires. Why? So that you can experience the hope that Jesus offers. You have to understand the context of these early believers. Keep in mind, 1 Peter is written to those who had been scattered amongst what well, is northern Turkey. And in the midst of being scattered among them, they are literally foreigners and strangers, first of all. Right? They have been pushed off to a certain extent. It would be like what's gone on with the, the people in Afghanistan. Some of them went into other countries. Some of them are in the United States. And to a certain extent, they are foreigners in that land. And they're going to follow the, the laws of that land at that place and at that time. But Peter also says to abstain from the sinful desires that could rise up. And so as I abstain from those sinful desires... God wants to do a greater work in me. And listen to what he says as he goes just a little bit farther. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Listen, in other words, we have to understand that we can be around lost people, but we are to abstain from the sinful acts that they follow through with or the thoughts that pagans have, or to do in, or, or, or that they have or do in order to not have this battle in life. So we abstain from the very things that the pagans think. It says, live good lives among them. Now, a lot of people are like, well, I don't like that word pagan. Pagan just means a person who's not a believer, a person who has given themselves over to a certain extent to Satan. 
And that's exactly what happens. What we begin to understand is this battle in the spiritual battle is a battle between what we said internally, but there's this external battle. And the external battle is that Satan is at work around us. And he's at work in the lives of people around us. And he's going to work through all kinds of ways he can to get people to follow his direction or to proceed to try and fill their lives with things that they think they need in order to have hope. See, Satan, according to Scripture, is very clear. He, he masquerades as an angel of light, right? So in other words, he masquerades as something that's good. He's putting on a false face, a mask, to try and mislead people into a direction that they think there's hope in, that they think there's fulfillment in, that they think there's value and purpose and identity and everything else, when the truth of the matter is our identity comes in Christ. So it says, live such good lives among those people who don't know who Jesus Christ is, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here's what I want you to understand or begin to see. How can I make a difference with my life? Number one, I have to live as a stranger in this world. But as I live in a stranger in this world, I live good lives or I live a good life among those who are lost. All right? So I live my good life among those who are lost. That's literally being a person of conviction and character, of obedience to what God has called me to do while I live among those people who don't know who Jesus is. Now, for some reason, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, and I've been a pastor now for eight. For some reason, we in the church like to do this. Well, I can do, I can, I can, I can do exactly what they're doing, and I ain't got a problem, right? Right? And we want to walk this line, and we're right on the edge, and we're like, I don't, I don't, we, oh, I missed that step. Okay, wait. Now I look like an idiot, don't I? right? But this is how we operate in our lives, right? Like, like if I got just enough Jesus, I'm good, but I'm going to hang out. And listen, a lot of times our friends will pull us this way. But let me be very clear. I don't believe the world is called to be outside or not in a relationship with those who are lost. So when I walk, I can walk closely right here, but guess what? I'm not walking right on the line. See what can happen? If I'm right here and my friends are pulling me a certain direction and I'm right here on the edge, it's going to be a lot easier to give in to what they're doing. But if I'm walking back here and I'm like, hey, listen, I'm still walking next to you, but I'm not so close to the edge that I'm going to put myself in a temptation to fall away. I live as a stranger in this world. And here's the reason why I live in a stranger's world, because this world is not my home anymore. My home is based upon the future promise that Jesus offered that my home is going to be in heaven, that my home will be with him forever. We just talk about this whole thing as we sing. And as I walk along this, I relate with those who are lost. I hang out with those who are lost. I love on those who are lost. I speak the truth to those who are lost. I don't have to give in to the sins that they're doing. I don't have to chase the life that they're doing, but I can stand right here and I can walk firmly along this stage line without getting so far over that I put myself into a situation or a circumstance that easily allows me to give in to the sinful desires I want. And please hear me out when I say this. Every one of us struggle with the sinful desires. It's the work of Satan. Like we talk about this war on the home fronts, but there's the whole way that Satan works. Satan doesn't go at you at your strongest point, does he? He doesn't look and go, man, he's really strong there. I think I'm going to hit him there. Satan goes, oh, there's a weakness. 
There's a chink in the armor. There's the break in the line. Just like in World War II, just like in every war, every commander, every general is looking for the weak spot to attack. And if I can gain access to the weak spot, I can get behind enemy lines and I can flank the enemy and I can attack from the front and I can attack from the rear. And that's exactly what Satan wants to work in. He does it in ways that we don't often understand. And please hear me out. I've heard people over and over again, I welcome the battle of Satan in my life. Really? Please hear me out when I say this. We serve a risen king who, yes, gives us all power and all authority and gives us all ability to stand. But when you face the attacks of the enemy and you say, I welcome any attack that Satan wants to bring, please hear me out. You don't carry the power. Your power comes only through Christ. And Jesus is the only one. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me that I, he, can wage the battle. He has won the victory. But listen to me, I don't leave a door open and say, oh, come on in, enemy. Like, I mean, how many of you are going to go home tonight, leave your door wide open and invite anybody in? But why do we do that in our Christian life? Why do we leave our doors wide open? Heck, man, some of us, we're not leaving them just unlocked. We're leaving them open. You're not giving Satan the chance to kick the door in because you just invited him to walk right in. How do I make a difference in my life? I live as a stranger in this world. And so I don't give in to those sinful desires. I don't chase after those things. Christians are already, listen, being accused of doing wrong. We're already being accused of not loving people or not accepting the lifestyle of everybody. And please hear me out when I say this. I think it's funny how science is always used to support or defend our opinion until our opinion no longer lines up even with science. This is the ludicrousy. Can I make up a word? This is the hypocrisy of the world. <laughs> Pastors are guilty of making up words at times. This is what's ludicrous about a world with which we operate. How you live your life will proclaim loudly what you believe about God, his sacrifice in Christ, and his word. How you live your life will proclaim loudly and boldly what you believe about God, his sacrifice in Christ and his word. So listen, when I say, how can I make a difference with my life, then I live as a stranger in this world, and here's why. Because I want to live a good life among the pagans that, listen, though they accuse me of doing wrong, because here's what will happen eventually, and I believe it will happen even within the church, that there are the people who say they follow Jesus who will turn their back on believers, it says that we should live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Here's the promise that I see. Number one, that when we are obedient to God, people may make negative comments, but at some point there's no denying the goodness of what comes out of the life of a believer. And number two, listen, when our good deeds are noticed at some point, some will change. Some will realize the goodness and the promise of Jesus Christ. And it says, listen as we look at that, and glorify God on the day he visits us. It may be the second coming. I believe it could be this, this idea of where Jesus is showing himself to these people through the works that you and I do, through the good deeds and how we love and serve them. And on their day of salvation, they are able to sit back and go, oh, now I see what you're talking about. 
So we live as strangers or aliens. Now, as I get into the second part, when we talk about how I can make a difference with my life, there's going to be some controversy here, and I know that. There's going to be some thought processes, and I know that. But listen to me when I say this. I believe wholeheartedly that submission and suffering are things that we have to begin to understand. Number two, how do I make a difference with my life? I submit to the authorities. Now, we're going to unpack this in a couple of ways. Before you get all bent out of shape, let's read the text. Listen to what he says in verse 13. Submit yourselves for whose sake? The Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, here we are, by doing good again, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, going back to abstaining from the evil desires or sinful desires, but rather live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. So here's what I want to say when we talk about submission to authority, and I'm going to unpack just the end of those verses as well. When I want to make a difference in my life, then I have to learn to submit to authorities. Now, there's a number of ways we can go about chasing this out, right? A number of ways we can go into unpacking it. And before you get all bent out of shape, again, like I said, let's sit down and let's think about, let's talk about what's going on. Christians are often the targets of attack when we stand against the standards of the community. Like right now, we're in a world that says what's right is what's right in your eyes. Don't tell anybody what's wrong. Don't tell anybody what's incorrect. Don't, don't confuse them because if a person feels a certain way, then they should be allowed to function in that way, which is completely against Scripture. We live in a state, we live in a country, we live in a world in which the government wants to say that there are things that we are going to accept and acknowledge because we don't want to offend anybody else. But listen, by going out of our way to be law-abiding citizens, we are doing it for the sake of the Lord who has appointed authority out of his will. He has placed these people, and please hear me out when I say this, I believe that our elected officials have been elected by a country, by the people, based upon what they believe. Did I step on some toes yet? I don't like it. I don't love it. But please hear me out when I say this. My hope is not in a political party. My hope is not in a president. My hope is not in a senator or a congressman. My hope is not in a city councilman. My hope is not in my government officials or the places we are at. But listen to what submission means. Submission is this idea of placing myself below or under someone out of voluntary respect in obedience to the relationship with which they have. So listen to again what he says. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now the idea would be at this point that these individuals have been led into countries where they're going to operate or they're going to live under the authority of the kingships or the dictators or whoever was there at that point in time. And so what he's talking about is the legal authorities. 
that are in place that operate under those circumstances and situations. And he says, listen, it is good for you to operate under the legal law-abiding citizenship that you are supposed to operate in to be obedient to what you are supposed to do. And as you do that, you will succeed as a believer or follower. Because he says, listen, to the king who is the supreme authority or to the governor who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So I believe this wholeheartedly, that every believer is to be a law-abiding citizen. You get that part? What's the key word there real quick? Law-abiding citizen, right? So a believer follows the law. We don't look for ways to skirt the law. We don't look for ways to get out of what's wrong or, or to do what's wrong in the right way or, or anything like that. We want to be law-abiding citizens. We operate under that thing. I submit to the authorities who are above me. And it says, for by God's will, or for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So we operate under that standard. We submit to the authorities that God put above us. But I want to ask this question, when is it okay to disobey? And I believe that over the last year and a half, we have seen a rise in disobedience, and there is a reason behind it. And I will be the first to say that when the government came out and said, you can no longer meet as a church unless you're 10 or under, I can tell you wholeheartedly, as the pastor, I contacted our association, I said, I'm following a lawsuit. It's going to happen. Why? Somebody tell me why. It goes against God's word, number one. Number two, it is against the legal standards by which the government of the United States was set up. Now, before we begin to unpack this and understand, you have to understand, when is it okay to disobey? I want to say it in a very clear way. There are various texts throughout Scripture where it is okay to disobey the public authorities when the laws they govern us with violate or negate the truth of God's word. Do you hear when I said that? The way we disobey the local authorities is when they, the laws they govern us with or dictate, violate, or negate the truth of God's word. So that's why when that decision came up that they were going to make those decisions and say, hey, you can no longer meet, I was the first one to step up and go, no, 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 this is not going to happen. The first one in our church. We, and, and I'll be honest, when I brought this up, there were other churches in, in the mix, and we had some bigger churches who had lawyers in their, in their church, and they said, we're going to lead the charge. Are you in? And I said, we're in, right? So there is a way and a time and a situation, a circumstance in which you violate or disobey the laws of those who reign over you, and it's when they violate or negate the word of God. So I'm always in obedience to what God says, and the only time I disobey what those who are put above me are is when it violates or negates the truth of God's word. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Nebuchadnezzar had built a 90-foot monument to himself, a 90-foot altar, where he says, listen, everybody who doesn't bow down worship, when the flute, the, the harp, the lyre, anything that's been played, when that happens, you're to drop to a knee and you're to acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar as king, basically. You're to worship this idol of 90 feet. And it says that there were people who didn't do it. As a result, those people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were thrown into a fiery furnace. Anybody know this story? And there's a point in time where it says, listen, 
I'm going to flip over there because I, I think it's important for us to read this. But if, if you were to understand what's taking place, there's a point in time where we as individuals, believers, we want to submit to the legal authorities who are over us. But when those laws begin to violate or negate the word of God, then we no longer are obedient. We're no longer called to be obedient. We're called to be disobedient in a loving way. But listen to what happens. They literally say this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. When is it okay to disobey the rules and the laws and the legal governing of a body that's put above you? When it violates or negates the truth of God's word. Please hear me out when I say that. I stand alone on God's word. I build my life on God's word. I believe based upon what God's word says. I follow what God's word has told me to do. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel, as well as the rest of the people were around him, and they were told that you need to pray three times a day to this, 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 uh, to, to, sorry, to Nebuchadnezzar. And as they were doing it, if they didn't do it, then they were going to be thrown into the lion's den. And so there's a point in time, it says the administrators, Daniel chapter six, verse six, these administrators, these satraps, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. Everything that Daniel did was above board. He was a law-abiding person. Everything's going great. He's, he's doing everything he's supposed to do up until the point where it says this. Daniel had so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king had planned to set him over the whole kingdom. But the administrators didn't like this. So it says in verse 6, the administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and they said, King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators All of us together have agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, King Darius, shall be thrown into the lion's den. And what ends up happening? Daniel says, over my dead body, am I going to be praying to King Darius? Matter of fact, when Daniel goes to pray, it says that he would go to his room and he would pray and they would begin to spy on him and they catch him. And in the midst of that spying and catching him, he's going to be thrown into the lion's den. And it, it grieved Darius, but Darius is like, I got to be a man who's going to follow the laws that I set. Please hear me out when I say this again. I submit myself to the authorities that are placed above me when they have the law on their side until that law negates or rejects the word of God. Now, somebody would say, well, what about now? And please hear me out when I say this again. I don't believe that I'm I'm not a person who likes to get up and deal with the politics. And there are some of you who may disagree with Peter for you believe you should keep your politics and your religious uh, beliefs separate. But there is nowhere in Scripture where you can have politics and your beliefs separated. Nowhere. You can't say you believe one thing politically and then deny your beliefs based upon a political action. 
Peter sees all of life, as well as I believe Jesus, in relationship to God. And so how I vote, what I do, how I say, or anything else is built upon that. And so I live as a free man, but I don't use my freedoms to cover up evil. And so listen, when I say this wholeheartedly, we have a law-abiding document that's over the United States. It's called the Constitution. And any person government official or individual or party that wants to begin to violate the Constitution or stand up or change the Constitution is now doing what? Trying to change the laws. And when you try and change the laws, you're trying to make them in your favor. And I've said this earlier this week, that the more power we give to those who are over us, the more we lead into a dictatorship. And the more we lead into a dictatorship, the more we step against the Constitution and the freedoms that were placed above it. So when we talk about submission to authority, when the submission to authority has the power of the Constitution behind it, you can submit to it. When the power of the Constitution then is no longer negated, then you begin to say, no, we're not going to put up with it. So please hear me out. The first violation that I can say, and I'm going to be a disobedient citizen, is when they stand against God's Word. God's Word dictates everything. The second one then is when you begin to violate the laws of the land with which you live in. Nobody is above the legal laws of the land with which we live. Nobody. I don't care if you're a president. I don't care if you're a congressman. I don't care if you're a senator. I don't care if your Joe Schmo lives down the street and you're a plumber. I don't care. Nobody goes against the laws of the land with which they were set up. So, now that I get off my little soapbox and submission to authority, we begin to understand what takes place. This is what he says in verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Please hear me out when I say this. Number three is this. If I want to make an impact, or how can I make a difference with my life, I have to be ready to suffer because it shows Christ. What he's saying here is to the slaves, those people who were owned by people, and a lot of people think that slavery for some reason, just came about in the 1800s, 1700s in America. Slavery has been a lifelong thing. The history of the world has been built on slavery. And I don't like it. There's nothing great about it. I think it's a misleading. I think that there are people who were slaves that were well cared for, and I believe there were people who were slaves who were not. And I think it should be based upon how you view things. But please hear me out when I say, when I say that. How I treat others should be based upon how I view Scripture. But there were issues that were going on in that world, and a lot of times the Roman government and people like that would come in and they would take over an area, and then people would become slaves. They were put into indentured servants, and some were badly mistreated. 
And what Peter is saying here is there are those of you who are slaves to people who are badly mistreating you and you're getting beating and you're getting tortured as a result of your beliefs, as a result of who you are. And he's literally saying this, in the midst of that, submit to your masters with respect. Not only to those who do good, but to those who do bad. So please hear me out when I say this. We just talked about this constitutional thing. But at some point in time, I believe our government will begin to crack down. At some point in time, I believe in the United States, it is not going to be good for you to be a Christian. At some point in time, it's going to cost you and I because I believe at some point in time, we will be held accountable. We're going to be tortured. We're going to be persecuted. There are going to be people who are going to be brought under or be put under submission. They'll be operated as slaves. It's already happening in some of our media where people are trying to say, well, they're not even, they're, they're, they're not even getting on board with where America's going. And my question is this, are you ready to suffer? I believe that there are legal laws of the land with which we can protect ourselves. But at some point in time, those legal laws may disappear. And my question then is this, are you willing to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ? Remember what I talked about, there are two theologies here that I believe that Peter is unpacking that we have to understand. The theology of submission and the, the theology of suffering. And suffering is huge. And what he literally unpacks is this. He says, when they hurled insults, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And I've gone long, sorry. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. But when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to who to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in the body on the tree so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. Why? Because by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There are three things that happen here when we talk about what happens with Christ. Number one, Christ suffered for us, carrying our sins on the cross. Number two, that Christ literally was our substitute, and then number three, that Christ is our shepherd. And so as we look at this theology of suffering, slaves were to submit to their masters, but we suffer as a result because we know that Jesus suffered first. Can I tell you one thing, and this has made me more nervous than anything. This has made me more worried about the American church, and I'm gonna wrap up with this. Over the last year and a half, none of us suffered persecution. Not to the extent of what we're talking about. But what we saw in the American church was a flighty, if it's not easy, I'm out, religious attempt. And I'll be honest with you, I'm nervous as a pastor. I'm nervous at times for some who claim to be a part of the church, that if persecution really rose, I think people would run. Be like, I'm out. Didn't sign up for this. It's not easy. You're asking me to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Oh my gosh, have you read the Bible? If Jesus suffered, what are we called to do? And here's what's crazy about it. When Jesus suffered... When the disciples suffered, when people are martyred and persecuted around the world, do you know what happens with the gospel? It doesn't stop. 
It progresses. It grows. It's viral. It multiplies. People begin to take stances and say, if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. If it costs me my life for other people to have faith in Christ, then listen to me, I'm all in because that's what Jesus called me to. The theology of submission and the theology of suffering are something that are very weak in the American church. And I believe wholeheartedly that God's called us to submit. And there are times to submit, and there are ways to submit, but there are ways to disobey in a loving way. But I believe there's also ways that we have to begin to understand that suffering is the end call for some, if not all of us in the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks volumes to us. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the fact that you have called us to make a difference, and we make a difference by living as strangers or as foreigners in a world that is not our home. But Lord, we also are to submit to the authorities, and sometimes those authorities may fall out of line with Scripture, and that we don't have to follow those things that they call us to follow. We live in a world that says right is wrong and wrong is right. And God, the last time I checked scripture, you said that would be exactly what happened. That good would be evil and evil would be good. And so Lord, we wait just as we sang. We wait knowing that at some point you're coming. And it may be sooner rather than later, but God, we know that we are called to suffer. We know that we are called to submit. So God, let us submit obediently, but let us not negate the truth of your word. God, let us suffer. And if we have to suffer for the sake of the gospel, God, let us understand that it is for our goodness and our sake and our hope and the hope of the world that we can stand on that truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.